0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. This morning we get the privilege of entering a new passage, and while the content is very distinctive from the passage we just finished from 312 through 317, they are very much related, stretching from verse 18 all the way now into chapter 4 in the first verses there we will see Paul's analysis of a Christian family. The family is the first societal structure instituted by God. It comes from family, all other societal structures. That is to say that the framework for society is based on the framework for family. And so it is here in our text, in Colossians chapter 3, that God establishes that family order. If we get this passage wrong, we get all of society wrong. If we misinterpret this text, we will misinterpret life and God's plan. And so it is for this reason that I have titled, not just today's message, but really this series, Foundations for a Thriving Society. Because this passage establishes those very foundations, And so we begin in verse 18, and it is there that we see first a wife's submission, a controversial topic in today's culture. Um, And so if you haven't done so already, I do invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians 3. And I ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. It says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 18 Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by the way of eye service as people pleasers but with sincerity of heart fearing the lord verse 23 whatever you do work heartily as for the lord and not for men knowing that from the lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward you are serving the lord jesus christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You may be seated. Among the greatest achievements of Christianity is the Christian family. A functioning Christian home establishes authority. A functioning Christian home establishes priority, and a functioning Christian home establishes uniformity. Instituted by the Lord at creation, the family serves as a means for the Lord to reveal himself to the world. The family is first a revelation of the Lord's relationships. We see this in the husband and wife relationship, which serves to reveal Christ's relationship with the church. We also see this in the relationship between parent and child, which serves to reveal God the Father, and his relationship with those who would indeed call him Father. Not only is family an illustration of the Lord's relationships, but it serves to picture the Lord's character. Colossians 3.12, where we spent so much time, it calls upon the children of God to put on compassion and kindness and humility, meekness and patience. Each of these are characteristics that are not inherent to human nature. They only come from the Lord. They are born out of our relationship with the Lord. And that is to say then, to put on these characteristics, as Paul says in Colossians 3.12, means we must put on the Lord. Where are those attributes found in society? We just saw it in Colossians 3.18 through 4.1. They're found within the family. And so the family is a revelation of the Lord's character. Perhaps the most obvious revelation, though, is that the family is the revelation of the Lord's order. Our God is a God of order, and few aspects reveal this more than the Christian family. Not only is it necessary for us to function within the family, but we as people need structure to function. We need structure in Scripture. We need structure in society. We need structure in the church. That structure, that responsibility is first found and first established in the family, placed on the shoulders of parents. And so it is the structure of the family that is revealed in our passage of Colossians. It is here that we see the Lord's will for families beginning first with his plan for wives like any good and perfect gift from the Lord we as sinners as as humans we have a tendency to corrupt a very good thing and we see that in this text or rather we see this text corrupted through our application of it when the Lord what the Lord intended as a good thing It has been both misunderstood and misconstrued. In the 1970s show All in the Family, there's an episode when Edith Bunker decided that she wanted to experiment with finer cuisine. And so rising early one morning, she begins to make a breakfast, something different than what was normal. And she labored over it for Archie. But Archie was unimpressed and very quickly demanded his usual bacon and eggs. And despite all of her hard labors, Edith acquiesces to that request. The whole time, their daughter Gloria is watching this take place. And she begins to say, she's more upset for her mother than her mother's upset. And she says, submitting to him, that's what she is doing. Submitting to her ruler, her lord and master. And Archie responds, well, ain't that a nice way of putting it? That scene seems to represent a general understanding of what most of us have about submission. It also represents a general attitude towards submission. And yet it misses a mark because it doesn't understand what makes submission so beautiful and so glorious. While the Lord instituted submission as a means to reveal Himself, Christians and non-Christians alike have misunderstood fewer texts as much as they misunderstand this one. And so what I want us to see this morning is the submission indeed is a gift from the Lord. It is a means for us to steward for his glory and the good of his people. Before we enter the text this morning, I want us to give attention both to the circumstances and the condition of society both our society today and the society of Paul's time. And I want to note first a wife's relationship with her culture. A wife's relationship with her culture. The current mandate of our culture is to, to violate this mandate of Christ. By society standards, this verse and any verse like it should be considered irrelevant and irreverent. And so they say it should be removed from the context of Scripture and instead contextualized into our modern culture. Thus, what they mean is that it should be either adapted or abolished completely. As I began the study for this particular text, my goal was to avoid any discussion about cultural interpretation on this text. I'd much rather labor over the text than to labor over the culture's opinion about a text. But as I began to do research, and as I began to look at different things, it became very clear. Every commentator, every preacher, every teacher, all had to step back and take time to deal with the culture's interpretation of this verse. And so because the culture's commentary has become so influential on this topic, Indeed, it is necessary that we address that. And so I wanted to address just three objections from the culture, but I want to do so biblically. First, critics would claim that this verse, or submission, borrows from the culture of Paul's day. Paul lived in an era in which cultural codes of the day determined how households functioned. There were moral codes or moral rules that determined how people behaved or didn't behave. We see writings like those of Dio Chrysostom, who listed various rules, and chief among those within the family was the submission of wives. Even the ancient moralists, both of Paul's day and prior, those like Aristotle and Plato, would tell you that the most moral position was a wife's submission. And so because those codes existed in Paul's time, people will say that Paul was simply taking the teaching of the culture and putting it into scripture. That he was trying to appease the culture. But is that true? The obvious answer is, of course not. Scripture is not written from the culture, but rather culture is written from scripture look at the next verse in Colossians 3 3:19, and it just says this: "Husbands love your wives." None of us would argue this verse. None of us would say, well, this verse needs to change for our culture today. In fact, we would probably argue that this verse needs to be applied more today. This is where theology matters. If we believe that the word of God is from an eternal God, then we must also believe that his word is also eternal, that it is timeless in nature. And so we must believe that the word of God, that the Bible is relevant for all ages, all eras. Husbands, how do you love your wives? Perhaps it's by bringing them fresh flowers. Maybe it's by doing doing dishes for them. Do you think Adam loved his wife in that way? Probably not. He's probably out shooting dinosaurs, so they had something to eat. (laughs) We may change how we show love, but notice the text doesn't change. Adam's command was still to love his wife. It just may have looked differently based on their circumstances. And so, we look at this verse and say, the words don't change. We could also note that if Paul was truly borrowing from the culture, he wouldn't have written that text in verse 19. He would not have written, husbands, love your wives. Because in those household codes, those moral codes that I just mentioned to you, love had nothing to do with marriage, or very little, it was... Just a stroke of luck if you happen to love your spouse. Instead, Paul would have written husbands govern your wives if he indeed was borrowing from the culture of the day. Because women were treated as possessions. And so he would have emphasized a husband's headship over the wife. So if Paul didn't borrow his teaching from the culture on verse 19... Why would we say that he borrowed his teaching from the culture on verse 18? Because he didn't. Really, what Paul is doing is reaffirming what we already see in Scripture elsewhere. 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 through 13. It indicates that God's design for women all along was for her to be a helpmate. We see this confirmed at the creation account in Genesis 2.18. When God created woman to be a companion... So the Apostle Paul does not borrow the word of the culture. He borrows the word of Christ from the very beginning. The second objection is that submission betrays freedom in Christ. This objection comes from this cultivation of personal autonomy as a supreme value. All people want absolute control over their own lives. And so they want to reject all forms of authority in their lives. Is that not what led to the fall in Genesis 3? A desire to be like God and control their own lives. The same thing is still exerting its influence in the culture today. And so they would say that submission in our text is opposite of freedom in Christ. But what we'll see as we advance through our text this morning that actually what Paul is doing is linking one's submission to her husband to her relationship with Christ. See, while the Hellenistic culture, that is the Greek culture of the day, emphasized the lordship of the husband, Paul actually emphasized the lordship of Christ. And finally, the most notable objection is that this text belittles women. Such a claim is very easy to make when we don't understand the background of our text. The Apostle Paul, even today, we would say, holds a very radical view of marriage. But he certainly held a radical view in his time. And not because his writings affirm the culture, but actually because they're the opposite of the culture. In his writings, Paul actually elevates women. And again, we'll see more of that later on. This isn't Paul introducing his own ideas. He's simply highlighting the order that God has already established. Jews of the day gave many rights to men, but very few to women. Men could seek a divorce for many causes. They could change wives pretty easily. But the Jews weren't alone in those views. The Gentiles of the era tended to treat women as possessions as well, considering women as subservient to men. But that's not the picture we see in the Old Testament, actually, where a lot of women are actually elevated. And by the time we reach the New Testament, even Jesus himself is teaching, like in Mark 10, that wives and husbands are equal. So while the world has much to say about this verse, it really has very little to say it with. We live in a time when people equate a level of noise with a level of accuracy. And that mentality now demands a level of Christian discernment so that every writing, every report, every notice, every idea, it must be filtered through a biblical worldview. It must be filtered through our lens of the word. And so therefore, a, a wife's relationship with her culture is one of discernment. Just because people say it loud and often doesn't mean the culture is right on this verse. Really, this is just a means of Satan to deceive and get a foothold into the church by propagating lies through a culture who's willing to be his vessels of deceit. His deception necessitates our discernment. We live in a culture that it can't even define what a woman is. Why would we let them tell us then what a woman should behave like? If the culture can't define what a woman is, why would we let the culture define the character of a woman? It's not for unbelievers to tell us what to think about the Bible it doesn't make sense for us to let people who don't even believe in God determine what God is saying. Amen. To quote Trinchali's true discernment can be founded only upon a Christian biblical worldview that allows us to affirm the importance of the antithesis between good and evil. And so actually what we see here is not just a wife's relationship with the culture we actually see all of our relationship with the culture, one of discernment. But having just refuted that cultural analysis of this verse, I want to enter the text itself. And I want you to note, second, a wife's relationship with her husband. The text simply reads, Wives, submit to your husband's. Soranus, a medical doctor from Ephesus, writes in his book on gynecology years ago. He says women are married for the sake of bearing children and heirs, and not for pleasure and enjoyment. Therefore, it is totally absurd to inquire about the quality or rank of the family line or the abundance of their wealth, but not to inquire about their ability to conceive children. That was his view. Verse 14 of chapter 26 of the book of Sirach states I'm trying not to laugh (laughs) because it's hilarious that 200 years before Christ it actually says this a silent wife is a gift from the Lord. It is incredibly amusing to read that. We make jokes all the time. But at the same time, it's appalling to read that. Because that's revealing what they thought of women. These were public, prevailing views of their era. And I read them so that you get a sense of the true nature of the culture that Paul was dealing with, which is not what we're being told. Paul, again, is very opposite, very radical in his views by elevating women to a greater position. And so it's important for us to understand this because while the world would have us believe that a biblical worldview enslaves women, what is actually offered is quite the opposite. Through biblical submission, they're offered freedom. What is presented in scripture, both here in verse 18 and and next week in verse 19 when we get there is direct contrast to the culture. The culture of the world at that day would imprison women by shackling them to their husbands. But what they're given here by the word of God is freedom in the Lord by subjecting them to their love of their husbands. And we'll see this when we recognize what it means for wives to submit And so I want us to consider and look at just three truths about submission. First, it's crucial that we understand that submission is derived from discipline, not deficiency. Our Lord is disciplined. He is the one who created order from disorder. He brought all the chaos together and created it and brought it into order. Hence, the world we now live. Submission is simply part of the Lord creating more order. And he does this by establishing the functional roles of men and women, husbands and wives. This does not imply inferiority, as some people would say. In fact, if you take Galatians 3.28, because scripture should interpret scripture, we see that actually male and female husbands and wives they're all equal participants in salvation the relationship between husband and wife is in this way it's exemplified well by the trinity we see god the father god the son and god the spirit each one of them is equal they just function differently same concept here in this text, notice the text of 1 Timothy 2, 13-14. It's written, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. From these two verses, we see that the model of submission is both a product of the order of creation and a result of the judgment for her temptation. So why does the Lord see headship as necessary? As I've already said, because by it, the Lord brings about the organization of society. Think about what happens in sports when there are too many coaches or when you're at a job and there are too many bosses. What happens? Chaos reigns. Nobody knows who to respond to or what to do. Consider this. Think, think even more deeply about this. If we argue against the mission, or if we try to change this, what are we doing? We're arguing against God. We're questioning his authority. Even more, it means we're trying to subvert the, author- the order that he has already established. And what happens when you undo God's order? It's simple. You get disorder. Dick Luskis writes, Submission implies that God has so providentially ordered human affairs that a measure of authority must be exercised and recognized if human society is to hold together. If God knows all things about all things, And in his plan, submission was what he deemed as the perfect means for society to function. To go against it is to destroy, then, God's perfect creation. And again, I give you the fall as an example. I appreciate the perspective of Barbara Hughes. She shares, when we submit to our spouses... We are once again agreeing with God that his beautiful ordered plan is worth obeying and the mystery worth preserving. By so doing, we once again acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. To change God's order destroys the family. And because God has established the family as the most foundational structure to all of society, if you destroy the family, You destroy society. Consider also that submission is also a result of a willing disposition, not an unwilling deference. The word submission invokes a variety of responses and a variety of illustrations, and it it just creates an automatic response in us. That's because authority is so frequently misused and abused And so the mere mention of submission, it causes us to pause and to reject this concept outright. Submission finds itself partly abused, partly because of the ways it's defined. It's considered to be some sort of unreserved obedience. And so some will say submission is used for husbands to be able to demand total compliance in which their wives must submit completely to their wills. At the same time, wives are unwilling to revoke their own personal autonomy. Let's be clear that description of authority, that description of uh, submission, is not limited to just the husband and wife relationship. We see it abused in the workplace between employer and employee, we see it abused in politics between civil servant and civilian. In fact, anywhere that submission and sinners are present together, it has a potential to be distorted by sin. But total obedience is not what Paul indicated by this text. In fact, if Paul wanted to convey total obedience, he would use the same word that he uses in verse 20 when he says, Children, obey your parents. But that's not the word he uses. He uses the Greek word, hupotaso, which means to put yourself under someone's authority. Same word is used in Romans 8 7, talking about the law. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It is to bring somebody under their own authority of somebody. But conveyed by Paul's use of the middle voice here, submission is a voluntary act that is a result of somebody's humility. For the sake of time, I don't want to spend a lot of time discussing this point, but we need to understand that there are two voices with which we write. There's the active voice and there's the middle voice. In scripture, when the active voice is used, and in all things, when the active voice is used, it means that somebody is being compelled to, to submit. They are being required to, as in they will submit. There is no option. But the middle voice declares something voluntary. It's also important to note that anytime the active voice is used in Scripture, as in to say you will submit, it's always God who is forcing the submission. I see this in 1 Corinthians 15 24 through 27. First Corinthians fifteen twenty four through twenty seven reads. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Again, God forcing submission. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Here the active voice conveys that the Lord is putting people in subjection and all things. But by using the middle voice in Colossians, Paul is saying this is a voluntary act. And so what we see here is submission in Verse 18 of Colossians 3 is not a slavery tool, it's not to enslave women, as some would take the term today. It is a product of a willing disposition. Why would a wife willingly place herself under the leadership of her husband? Hopefully because she first loves and trusts her husband. He has been called to lead her to lead her both towards godliness and to lead her with godliness. And so a wife expects that her husband's going to do that. But submission is also a result of her love of her Lord. Because she loves God, she is willing to comply with God's plan, the plan that he's put into place. Even more, we know that God is at work to glorify himself by working good into the lives of his people. And so she has confidence in that promise and having confidence in that promise, she knows that submission is his means to glorify himself and his means to bring about good in her life. Notice third. Submission is defined by the headship of Christ, not the headship of man. Submission is part of the Lord's divine purposes, not man's desired principles. It was instituted by the Lord in Genesis 3.16 when the Lord declares to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Because it is the Lord's will then, the Lord is allowed to define what submission is. Men do not get to demand great obedience from their wives. Hopefully we've already understood that, that it's voluntary. But we also have this regulatory principle in Acts 5.29. And it is there that Peter and the apostles declared very simply, we must obey God rather than men. That is to say that husbands are asking, if, the, if they're asking something outside of God's law, the wives have every right to suspend their submission to him. Allow me to take a moment then to speak directly to you husbands or future husbands. There is nothing in scripture that ties a woman's submission to a man's character. The only regulation that we see is Acts 5.29. That if you're asking her to go against the Lord, she may go against you. It means that you could be a horrible individual. And the Lord is still calling on their wives to... Submit and place themselves <clears throat> under the leadership of their husbands? Do you get the responsibility that comes with that? By calling wives to submit, the Lord is expecting you to lead and to lead in such a way that is both godly and loving. Remember our, our verse from last week, 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. Under the authority of the Lord, wives are placing their submission into your hands. And now you are being asked to steward their submission for God's glory. This is not a, I get to do what I want. But wives, why, why would you want to submit? Especially if it's not tied to his character. If the man is truly that awful, why why would you want to submit? That's got to be hard to be under that leadership. By reminding yourself that through your act of submission, you're carrying out the Lord's plan. Submission is your means to engage in the Lord's divine purposes. And it is through submission that the Lord is working out his purposes. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, as we read this morning, verse 1 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This is a means to influence your husband." Verse 5 goes on, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands. By adorning yourselves in this way, you're bringing honor to the Lord. It is a means to glorify him. More personally, this is the means by which God has ordered society. And if he has ordered society according to this, it means he intends to use submission for some sort of purpose, a means to influence society. First, he's probably using it in your life to cultivate character and to force you to draw near to him. This also means to influence your husband's life. Maybe it's to bring an unbelieving husband to salvation. Or maybe it's just to create godly character in a believing husband, to sharpen or to soften those sharp edges. Maybe it's using your compassion to make him compassionate. George Schwinnock tells us that a gracious wife satisfies a good husband, and silence is a bad one. A woman was given not for man's whims and man's works, but for his character. As somebody once said, it takes a woman to make a man. This is God's design, and when we tamper with it, we do so at our own peril. Finally, God uses submission to influence others, influence other families. Maybe it's those in broken homes who have no idea what a biblical home looks like. And maybe it helps to restore order in homes maybe as to lead them towards the gospel. Submission is divinely instituted to accomplish a divine purpose, and we must remember that. I want you to note, finally, a wife's relationship with her Lord. Verse 18 concludes with that phrase, as it's fitting for the Lord. Indicating that submission is not merely a result of the wife's relationship with her husband. Instead, the text refocuses us to show us that our human relationships are the result of our divine relationship. And so a wife's submission to her husband is the result of her submission to her Lord. In some ways, I think we've already seen this in what we've gone through. So there's probably not a need to spend a whole lot of time here. But Paul uses this phrase, fitting in the Lord, some 40 times in his writings. And so that makes it important, at least for our understanding of Scripture. We just finished the previous passage. It ends in verse 17. that says, whether in word or deed, everything is to be done in the name of the Lord. It is no surprise then that Paul continues that same thought to say that submission is to be done in the name of the Lord, in a manner of speaking. It's to be done in a manner that is consistent with the lordship of Christ. This is an interesting concept because it transforms our view of marriage. From a human perspective, marriage is between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And what happens at marriage is she identifies with her husband. She is known as the wife of so-and-so. She will often take her husband's last name. But what we see in this text is not that she's identifying with her husband, but she's identifying with Christ. It's as if our text is saying, wives, submit to your husbands, not because you're married to them, but because you're married to Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.3 reads, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 1 Corinthians 15.28 expands this further. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That's a lot of confusing words, I get that. But then we see the purpose, that God may be all in all. Submission is a means to identify ourselves with Christ, acknowledging that as he submitted to God the Father, wives are submitting to their husbands. Ephesians five twenty-two through 23, the parallel verse to this offers further clarification. It reads, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. The God-ordained relationship is God's way of showing our relationship with Christ. It pictures the church's submission to Christ lordship, expressing not just responsibility, but it's expressing the joys and the blessings and the salvations that come from submitting to Christ. This point elevates submission to something beyond just the husband-and- wife relationship. Submission is a means to model the gospel. That same unbelieving world who doesn't understand what submission is can understand when we model it to them. And not because we're trying to model submission to one another, but because we want to model what submission to Christ is. When we deny submission by capitulating to the culture, we negate a God-given opportunity to share his truth. It further transforms marriage not By not just making the relationship about Christ, but it impacts how we live in the relationship for Christ as well. Even if her husband is not a believer, this text means the marriage is still about Christ. We tend to think about marriage between two humans, but by reading this, we say that marriage is also with God at the center. Submission is not an obligation to please her husband. Submission is a result of a wife's desire to please Christ. As a concept, few challenge humans more than submission. Again, it goes to our desire for personal autonomy, authority in our own lives. Wanting to be masters of our own lives, the idea of submitting to somebody else just goes against our nature, our sinful nature. And yet none of us are masters of our own lives we must submit to the one who is over life, the one true God. As a Lord over creation, it was he who established submission as a means to order society. And so if we're to submit to him, then we're to submit to this gift as well. What makes submission more complicated is not merely the desire to be Lord of our own lives, but it's difficult, it is hard, to hand our lives over to the care of somebody else, specifically somebody who is flawed. R.C. Sproul writes, to submit to anyone less than Christ is difficult in marriage. Yet it is Christ who commands women to be submissive to their sinful, fallible husbands. And yes, that's what we are. In this sense, Christ is the silent partner of the marriage. It is hard for a wife to submit when she disagrees with her husband. But when she knows her submission is an act of obedience to Christ and honors Christ, it is much less difficult. In submission, then, we find great joy because by it we participate in the perfect plan of God. Submission is... A grace given to us by the Lord. Given to us not just to reveal our sinfulness, but actually to reveal God's goodness. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you in a challenging text this morning, and yet we know that's the beauty of your word that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts both ways. With precision, it it takes out what needs to be taken out. Father, as we look upon these words today, may your word pierce us. May it draw us closer to you more than anything. May we be convinced of your truth, and may we be ready to live it out. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in this way. And Father, may we just see that as a great gift, a great grace of you. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.